0: to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler and I work here with Pastor Ben Kramer at Cathedral of the Rockies. We continue our series on the seven deadly sins and today is about anger. Anger is interesting because unlike the previous sins in this series, it is something that isn't always a sin or that it's not a sin in and of itself. There are plenty of instances where we think anger is justified especially since anger is just a normal human emotion that everyone feels at times for a variety of reasons. I think the sin factor really boils down to how we handle anger when we feel it. And this is the route Pastor Ben goes in this sermon, so hopefully you take something away from it to ponder on. So enjoy. Like I said, at the beginning of service, we're, we're looking at anger today and how we express it and what makes anger a sin, let alone a deadly sin. Last week, we looked at the, the sin of sloth and we're moving uh, through this, the, the list until we get to the end. Uh, so let's remember first off, the definition of sin. Sin is anything that separates us from God or each other. Anything that causes irreparable damage to our relationship with God or our relationship with others. It is a known violation or a known disobedience of a known law of God. And the dictionary defines anger as a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. So you can see kind of even the English word for anger is kind of broad, right? Everything from annoyance, which some of you experienced on the way in traffic on the way to church this morning, all the way to displeasure or hostility, right? So even our English definition for anger has kind of a broad definition, I was joking with Alex this morning, like, man, it, it says a strong feeling of annoyance. I feel like sometimes I live there all day long, right? I'm, I'm almost there to, to the sin of anger or wrath uh, all day long. And so it, it, it's really important to understand what we're talking about when we think of anger as a sin, let alone a deadly one. As I was doing my research for this sermon uh, over the last couple of weeks, I I looked for how anger can become a sin that can separate us from God or each other or how anger can damage relationships in our life with God or with each other. And looking at examples of anger in the Bible, I found that it was really made clear that anger is a commonly accepted emotion or expression in the Bible. And it can even be directed towards God. Here's just a few examples. Moses gets angry with God for mistreating his people. Lord, why have you mistreated or done evil to this people? Naomi was angry with God after the death of her husband and two sons. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me and Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Elijah was angry with God after the son and the widow died. O oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? What a raw question, right, to bring that to God. Job was angry with God. Job had a lot of reasons to be angry with God. <laughs> you have turned cruel to me with the might of your hand. You persecute me. Jeremiah was angry with God for deceiving his people. Ah, God, Lord God, how utterly you have deceived this people in Jerusalem. And the list can go on and on in the Bible. These verses and others like them uh, should help us to understand that expressing our anger and pain even to God, even if God is the one who is making us angry, is a part of a healthy relationship with God. In fact, being able to express when you are angry is a healthy part of any relationship, right? But what is so crucial here is there's a difference between expressing our anger, communicating our anger, and taking our anger out on other people, right? That is the vital distinction here. Coming to someone and said, hey, what you did made me angry, is different than going up and just punching them in the gut. <laughs> There's a huge difference there, right? One is saying, you, this circumstance is making me angry, and I want to work through it in relationship with you. And even if it's God, God, how many of you have told God that God's made you angry recently? Any brave? Oh, brave hands there. Good for you. It took a long time for me to get to that point to where I thought I had permission to say, God, What has happened in my life, what I feel like you have done to me is making me angry, and we got some stuff to work through (laughs) together. It took a lot for me. So if you're in that place, know that you have biblical examples of people going and saying, God, just read Psalm 88. It's one of the angriest sections in the whole Bible. Why have you left me in the place of the dead? You, I feel like you don't even know me anymore, God. It's a prayer in our prayer book, the Psalms. You're allowed to pray it, okay? So if you need a script, Psalm 88 is a good place to start. But if you're in that spot, know that it's a healthy part of our spirituality to come along and say, God, this is making me angry. You are making me angry. I want to process this together. Because if we don't have that healthy process together, especially in our relationships, our anger can start to fester and consume us. We can bottle it up and it can start to take itself out in other ways where we are actually taking our anger out on people or out on God in our relationship. So that's the vital distinction I want us to keep in mind today. There is such a difference between expressing and articulating and processing our anger and taking our anger out on the person who's the object of our anger. Um, It's a healthy part of our relationships, all relationships to express our anger. Um, But we also need to ask another question today. Aren't there good forms of anger too, right? We just saw that in a healthy relationship expressing that anger, but isn't there good forms of anger in the world and in scripture as well? It makes me think of uh, like how the prophets raged against injustice, against the poor and the vulnerable in Israel, they had very angry words against the king, against those in power, against the wealthy. They were angry because of how the poor were being mistreated and calling for justice in the land. I think of Jesus, probably one of the most famous parts of anger in the New Testament. You're already thinking of it. Jesus overturning the tables in the, in the temple, right? And he's overturning the tables of the money changers who were literally setting up a predatory economy that exploited directly the poor and the powerless for religious and political gain. And Jesus literally, he dismantled a whole weekend's worth of business by overturning the tables in that section of the temple because they were misusing God to exploit the poor. That's a, what I feel like a good example of, of anger, And like so many figures in history, from Martin Luther King Jr. to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who were so angry at the way things were and the way things were going, that they devoted their whole lives to the work towards justice. So it would seem then that anger in itself isn't a bad thing. It's how we express and use our anger that can mean the difference between sin and and goodness. I called my sermon this morning, are we angry towards revenge or angry towards justice? Because I think that's the difference between what can make anger a sin or not. Are we pursuing justice or revenge? I want to take a look at just a biblical story here uh, in Genesis 27. Before you bring that up, Shane, I want to set the context here. Uh, Jacob and Esau, you know, they get along just like any great Set of brothers. Um, Jacob is uh, just so you know uh, that that beginning part. Just to refresh your memory, uh, they were twins in the womb of Rebecca. I like the name Rebecca for some reason. <laughs> but they were twins, uh, and Esau was born first, but Jacob was holding on to Esau's ankle. In the Bible, right? As a way of saying, I should have been born first, right? And the Hebrew name Jacob means heel grasper. They had very literal names back then. Heel grasper or deceiver is what Jacob means. And so all of Esau and Jacob's life, Jacob is trying to manipulate and deceive Esau because he really thinks he should be the firstborn. Because as all firstborns know, we are the most favored and loved of all the siblings. We receive the the parents' blessings and the inheritance, all the good things, and the rest of the siblings just have to get what's left over. And all firstborns say, amen. <laughs> wow, there's a lot more firstborns in here than I thought. No, but th- that's kind of the way it worked in the ancient world, where the firstborns were the highly favored. Uh, Benjamin, Ben-Chamin, means son of the right hand. So, <laughs> highly favored of the Lord. So, and Benjamin was the favorite son, but he was the lastborn, but he still got the firstborn blessings and stuff like that. So just know that the Benjamins are, are really, really important. Side note, um, but Jacob and Esau, as they are going through life, Jacob consistently tries to manipulate and deceive Esau. One of the most famous parts is he gets Esau to trade his entire birthright for what? A bowl of soup. After a long hunt, he was starving, and he got him to trade his entire inheritance for that. Well, this, where we're about to read, Isaac, their father, is very, very, he's almost, uh, he knows he's going to die soon. He's going blind, he's losing his faculties and he calls Esau ahead of him and says, go get my favorite um, meal from DoorDash. And no, he says, go out on the hunt and bring me my favorite meal, prepare it for me and I will give you my final blessing, which means I will pass all of the gauntlet on to you. And so Rebecca, who seems to be on Jacob's side through this whole thing, comes along and says, Jacob, I will make your father's favorite meal you go out and put fur on because Esau was really hairy and you can go serve this meal to your father. He will reach out and think it's Esau and give you the blessing. And he does all of this. And then Isaac passes away. And here's what how Esau responds to this manipulation, this deception. Genesis 27, 41 through 42. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will soon be mourning my father's death. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But Rebecca heard about Esau's plans, so she sent for Jacob and told him, listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you. The written word of the Lord. (laughs) Now, I understand why Esau would be so angry. You can resonate with Esau's anger, right? If this happened to any of us, it would make any of us very angry. It's an injustice. In that time, it was the equivalent of not only taking the family's honor forward into all the future, it was a full inheritance of your your entire father's riches, inheritance, livestock, your whole estate, everything. And this was a deep deception and injustice against Esau. Yet how was Esau going to use and express his anger? Was he going to tell his brother how much it broke his heart and ask him to empathize with his situation? No. Was he going to tell his brother how wrong he was and ask him to repent and make things right? No. Was he going to take his brother into court and settle this dispute through the legal tools of the land? No, he was just going to kill him. Dorothy L. Sayers, I feel like, put my entire sermon into one sentence, and many of you have said, why don't you just say that quote and let us go to lunch? But this is what Dorothy L. Sayers says about wrath. She wrote that anger becomes a sin when the love of justice is perverted to revenge and spite. Love of justice is an important thing. But when it becomes a pursuit of revenge, that is different than justice. For the longest time, I misdefined justice as vengeance against evildoers. When justice is so much different. Henry Edward said that angry people are slaves to themselves. And that's what we see with Esau. He had become consumed by his anger towards Jacob. It's when anger becomes a sin when it becomes all-consuming and when it controls us more than we are in control of anger. And this is what Jesus says about anger in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And, I, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Shane, did we have that one? Can you, uh, so as I was reading this one, I thought, what if we just took that passage as the conduct for Christians in politics? What if we just took this passage and said, Christians, this is how you're supposed to act on social media towards those you disagree with? Especially that one verse if you are angry with someone and call them an idiot, if you call someone an idiot, you're a danger in being brought before the court. What if we used that as our rubric? of how we conduct ourselves when we get angry with someone who disagrees with us. See, Jesus here is talking about the the commandment, thou shalt not murder, which is an important commandment. But he's zooming in further on what often causes murder, the out-of-control anger in people's lives. He sees anger as not only the root of murder, but of mocking and of mistreatment of others. These things are sinful, but they are the manifestations of -of out-of-control anger. Jesus is asking his disciples to confront the root of anger within them so that it doesn't result in mockery, cursing, or worse. So you can see by this example how this sin can quickly turn into a deadly sin against ourselves and others. Not only can it result in what we see with Jacob and Esau in our world today, it can have collective consequences as well. My friends, as a, as a former evangelical Christian, I lament a lot and my heart breaks a lot at what I see my former movement doing in the realm of politics today today. And I could not help but think of that into context of today's discussion of anger. I think one of the things that grieves and breaks my heart the most about the evangelical engagement in politics over the last several years is how out of control the movement's anger seems to be. It is so full of mockery, spite, bitterness, and the spirit of vengeance It doesn't seem to just be disagreeing with things or wanting to institute policies that it supports. It often seems like the movement wants to punish and seek vengeance against those that it views as enemies by any means necessary. We saw this, how heavily the evangelical movement was in all things that took place on January 6th of 2020. But we also see it within the harsh laws that that they are proposing against those that they believe to be enemies. Just this last couple of weeks, I'm thinking most recently about South Carolina, where 21 lawmakers, many of whom claim to be Christians, proposed a law that would seek the death penalty for women who have had abortions. Similar laws have been proposed in places like Texas and laws regarding our LGBTQ siblings and libraries and books or whatever else that seem to be motivated so much by vengeance, hostility, and even cruelty towards those that have been defined as an enemy. This is such an eye for an eye retribution perspective of the world. And Jesus clearly condemns this eye for an eye mentality in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard it said, it's an eye for an eye, a life for a life. But I tell you, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Don't respond in violent retribution. Because you know what responding in violent retribution does? It just perpetuates violent retribution. (laughs) So Jesus is saying, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them, what? Two. If someone takes you to court and sues you for your shirt, give them your coat too. Because you are called, and he ends the sermon with what? The hardest thing ever. You have heard it said to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your neighbors and your enemies. So the one that's taking you to court is to be loved too. Seek justice, not vengeance. And I think so often what grieves me is it feels like my former movement has forgotten the common refrain all throughout scripture. Vengeance is mine, saith evangelicals. (laughs) If vengeance belongs to God, it means it doesn't belong to Christianity. It doesn't belong to us to take out on our enemies. Vengeance belongs to God alone. We are called to walk humbly, to seek mercy, and pursue justice with our God. As a prophet said, as the prophet was doing that in Israel, So no matter how angry followers of Jesus get towards those they see as enemies, no matter how right we think we are, there is no justification from Jesus to respond with vengeance and hostility towards our enemies. We Christians are to remember that Jesus said to love your enemies and that vengeance belongs to God, not us. I think it grieves my heart so much because we see in history, like the prophets and all throughout the Bible, when anger is used to stoke our work towards justice and love others, it can have incredibly positive results in the world. Ironically, we see this in the history of the evangelical movement, especially prior to the Civil War. Evangelicals were on the forefront of the lines of abolishing slavery advocating women's rights, advocating labor unions, opposing child labor laws, and so much more. They were collectively angry at the way things were, yet instead of allowing their anger towards the way things were to result in mockery, spite, and violent revenge against their enemies, the majority of evangelicals channeled their anger towards the positive work of justice for the common good of all people. We see this time and time again in movements that have changed our nation and changed our world for the better when they devote the things that make them angry towards the work of justice for all people. You see, anger that seeks vengeance makes the gospel about us. But an anger that produces a desire for justice in the world makes it about God and our neighbor, even our enemies that Jesus calls us to love. Here are some action steps. These action steps are for me as well, so remember that as I go through them. But examine your internal anger. As I'm, as I'm at the gym or as I'm at work, when I'm, especially when I'm by myself in my own devotions, my mind can spin over those things that annoy me, <laughs> those things that make me angry. But how am I allowing my anger? Uh, how, how, what's the narrative of my anger? Am I calling people an idiot in my mind? No one else is going to hear it except for God, but God knows me well enough, right? Am I I cursing people in my mind? Am I saying that person deserves retribution, or am I allowing my anger to think, okay, how can I bring justice to the situation? How can I speak and express my anger with this person? Is this something I even need to process with them, or can I write it in my journal? you write a letter that you're never going to send, right? Or maybe write a letter that you should send, right? How are you processing that internal anger to bring about a reconciliation rather than revenge or, or vengeance? Treating people with love, even in your anger internally, is the first step in not falling into anger becoming a sin. The next action step is examine your external anger. How are you expressing anger in your life? Uh, anger doesn't always result in the worst thing, right? Like like we saw with Esau. It can also take forms in nonverbal communication as well. When you're really angry with someone, it's really, really easy to roll your eyes when they're talking, uh, to treat them with contempt, to pr- like have selective hearing. Anyone good at that one, right? Where they're talking and you're just like, oh, they're far enough away. I didn't really hear what they had to say. Where you're dismissive, maybe maybe you mistreat them just with nonverbal behavior because you have that anger that's not being processed, that's not being expressed or examined. So it's taking these forms. So examine your external anger. How are you taking these things that cause legitimate anger in you but treating them with some productive pathways? Examine your prolonged anger. We are human beings with a history and there may be things in your past that you're still upset about that's still causing you anger. How are you examining that past anger? How are you going to take some productive steps towards expressing those things so that it that it's not a burden for you anymore? Um the Buddha had a has a has a phrase that stuck with me for so long that Anger or wrath is like a hot burning coal that someone clenches, ready to throw it at someone. Who does it hurt the most? If you're holding a hot burning coal in your hand, it's going to hurt you the most, right? So even if, and I'm not a very good aim, so I'm going to miss them anyways. Um, But anger can really burn you up, right? And it can take your energy, your focus off Things where you're really, really needed. So examining that prolonged anger can be such an important step in, in, in examining your relationship with anger in your life. And lastly, examine your engagement with collective anger. <laughs> this is a big one, right? There are a lot of things that make large groups of people really upset. I don't know if you've noticed that, but people, large groups of people can get really, really upset over things how we participate in collective groups when we are angry over something can make the difference between civil rights movement and what we saw on January 6th. Really productive engagement of saying we need to support and elevate the common good for all people or we're seeking revenge for us, right? Over what we think is wrong. And so we need to examine our engagement with collective anger. Is the groups that we are a part of voicing justice or revenge? It's really clear when people are talking about revenge because there's a lot of enemies that need to be conquered and hated, right? That's revenge. If we're looking for justice, the leaders of those movements are going to be talking about love, compassion, Mercy and concern for the least among them. The vulnerable, the poor, the, down, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, not enemies to be conquered, right? Enemies are potential neighbors that we need to continue to try to work with, right? Even if they refuse, even if they slap you, we're going to turn the other cheek and keep our focus on the marginalized, the poor, and advocate for their needs because they are the ones who will suffer the most, right? They are the ones who will suffer the most in the midst of this. If we get so caught up on conquering our enemies, guess who gets ignored? Always, every single time. So our participation with collective anger needs to be one that we closely examine. Are we pursuing justice or revenge? The difference can have world-changing consequences. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.